Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Jason Harrow. In today's episode, we return to our series on Supreme Court practice pointers, and our guest is Kevin Russell, a partner at the law firm of Howe and Russell. Now, here's Kevin. In the first two podcasts, Tom Goldstein and Amy Howe discussed the Supreme Court's criteria for granting certiorari and how those criteria translate into an effective petition. Today, I'm going to look at the same criteria from the perspective of writing an effective brief in opposition to the petition for cert. Actually, before getting to that, I'm going to start with the question of whether the respondent should even file a brief in opposition at all. There's nothing in the rules that requires a respondent to file a brief in opposition, and in fact, many respondents wisely choose not to. It is it, In the Supreme Court, if the court wants to hear from the respondent, it'll call for an order, it'll issue an order calling for a response. With one or two exceptions over the last several decades, the Supreme Court has never granted a petition for cert without having heard from the other side first. So there's generally little downside into waiving a response, and doing so often saves the lawyer a lot of time and the client a fair bit of money. That said, there are occasions in which a party is well advised to go ahead and file an opposition without waiting for the court to call for a response. This generally arises when it is clear that the petition will be taken as a serious candidate for cert, and especially when the respondent has a strong argument against cert that may not be apparent on the face of the petition or in the lower court opinion. For example, every cert petition filed by the Solicitor General is taken very seriously by the court. If you wait for the court to call for a response, the court may well reach a preliminary conclusion that the case is cert-worthy and sit around with that conclusion for several weeks while you're preparing your response, which is not in your advantage. Effective opposition naturally is directed at convincing the court that those criteria are not met in this case. Briefly, those criteria include, one, that the case presents a pure question of federal law, two, that there's a division among the federal courts of appeals or state supreme courts on that question, three, that the issue is ripe for resolution by the Supreme Court, four, that the issue is clearly presented on the facts of the case, and five, that the decision below is wrong. Tom and Amy explain that some of these criteria are more important than others for getting cert granted, and the same is true for getting cert denied. I'm going to focus on two of those criteria today the circuit split, and whether the issue is appropriately presented in the case before the court. Because many practitioners know the importance of identifying a circuit split, many attempt to concoct a split when there is not one there. An effective brief in opposition will go through the cases asserted in the split and demonstrate, if possible, that the petitioner is misconstruing the cases and that, in fact, there is no real conflict. Sometimes that's easy, as when the cases do not really say what the petitioner says they say. Other times, the respondent has to work a little harder to rebut the assumption of a split. And there may be a few things, though, that you can try. One is to show the court that the decisions relied upon do not reflect the authoritative position of the circuit. This is most easily done if the petitioner relies, for example, on unpublished opinions. But it may also be done if the decision has subsequently been vacated by the court sitting in banc or by the Supreme Court. Or if you can show that the decision below... Uh, Site uses language that is really dicta and not the court's holding. In addition, sometimes the language courts use in describing a legal rule tends to make it look like there is a more important difference among the courts of appeals than there really is. Sometimes the circuits have simply given different articulations to the same basic legal rule. A respondent can sometimes, therefore, make a persuasive showing that, in fact, the difference in articulation does not lead to different outcomes in similar cases, in which case the Supreme Court is not going to grant cert just to tell the lower courts what language to use in describing the test. Conversely, petitioners sometimes try to demonstrate a split by showing that the factually similar cases have resulted in different outcomes in different circuits. 
But if the respondent can show that it is simply the result of disparate application of the same basic legal rule, the Supreme Court is unlikely to grant cert simply to correct errant applications of settled law. Finally, even if the courts of appeals have clearly reached different conclusions on the same question of federal law, a respondent can sometimes point to intervening events that may call into question whether the split continues to be real. For example, if the cases in the split span a 10-year period and the Supreme Court decided a relevant case two terms ago, the court may well believe that the circuits will reconsider their positions in light of that intervening decision. This is true even when the intervening decision is not directly on point but may nonetheless influence the way the lower courts think about the question presented. By the same token, changes in the relevant statute or regulations can also lead the court to think that it need not intervene at this time in order to resolve an old split that may go away by itself. As important as the circuit split is, the Supreme Court frequently denies petitions asking for review of an undeniable split when the court is convinced that the petition presents a poor vehicle for resolving that question. A good brief in opposition will attempt to use these so-called vehicle problems uh, to bring to the court's attention the fact that this is not the best case for deciding the question presented. In fact, Supreme Court Rule 15 points out that Respondent's Counsel has a special obligation to raise such issues in the brief in opposition and will waive any objection that isn't jurisdictional if he doesn't raise it in the uh, brief in opposition. The first category of vehicle problems are those that could make it difficult for the court to reach the question presented. The most obvious barrier is a defect in subject matter jurisdiction, such as a lack of standing or mootness, which affects the jurisdiction of all the courts to consider the case. But there may also be defects in particular, uh, particular to the court's appellate jurisdiction, most commonly when the petitioner has tried to appeal an order before final judgment or is seeking to fit its case within the limited exceptions to the final judgment rule. The nice thing about such arguments from the respondent's perspective is that the court may deny certiorari even if the court does not ultimately think the jurisdictional objection is sound. Rather than having to waste time deciding the jurisdictional question, the court will often simply deny cert and wait for a case presenting the question without any potential jurisdictional problem. Although not jurisdictional, the petitioner's failure to preserve its argument in the lower courts may also lead the court to deny cert in an otherwise cert-worthy case. The court generally will not consider an argument not pressed or passed upon by the Court of Appeals, and the court generally won't hear an objection that wasn't timely made in the trial court, for example, to a jury instruction. It is worth respondents' time to look for such issues because parties often change counsel between trial and the cert petition, and new counsel may discover a cert-worthy question that her predecessor hadn't thought about and therefore failed to raise in the lower court. A second category of vehicle problems arises when the question to the, uh, when the answer to the question presented will not actually affect the outcome of the particular case before the court. Although the court takes cases to decide general legal questions of broad importance, it tends to decide them only in cases where the decision will make a determinative difference. That isn't true in every case. For example, uh, the cert where the issue may have arisen as an alternative holding in the lower courts. For example, the Court of Appeals may have held that the petitioner waived her argument, but then gone on to hold that, in any event, the argument was meritless. Even if the Supreme Court thought that the argument was, in fact, correct, the petitioner would still lose the case on remand on the basis of the waiver holder, waiver holding. Another common scenario arises when the plaintiff prevails on multiple theories or on, under multiple statutes, each of which independently authorizes the relief she received at trial. 
If, for example, an employee won a lawsuit under both state and federal employment discrimination laws, the Supreme Court is unlikely to take the case because the federal question will not impact the bottom line in the case and because the court will leave the proper interpretation of the state statute to the state courts. There are obviously other kinds of arguments to make in a brief in opposition as well, and we may cover those in future podcasts. But for now, thanks for listening.